Welcome to the Preacher's Podcast. We are in a series called God's Words Possess God's Power. Uh, today we're looking at Proper 7, and we'll get more explanation of the proper system uh, in just a minute, since that might be new to some of us. But God's words possess God's power. Let me give you just a, a quick rundown of the series theme. We are thinking about how human words are often meaningless, not because we intend them to be, but we make claims without knowledge always to back them up. We fail to keep promises, even when we try our best to fulfill our words. But God's words are different. Everything God says is meaningful. God speaks with absolute knowledge. He never lies. And God's words possess God's awesome power. It's God's words that establish our faith, transform our hearts and minds, and direct our lives along meaningful paths. So we gather each week to let the Holy Spirit do the work Jesus promised he would do in the way Jesus promised he would do it, through his word. So the theme for this Sunday, the Sunday that falls between June 19th and 25th, is Through the Word, the Lord Crushes Evil. I'm John Mitchell from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. With me today and throughout the series, uh, Pastor John Bauer of Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin, and Pastor John Bordelin from St. John's Lutheran Church in McQuanago, Wisconsin. And also with us today is Professor Alan Sorum of Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, uh, also the Pastoral Studies Institute. So we thank you all for being with us today. Uh, John Bauer, let's start with you. Before we get into the theme for the week, could you give us a brief explanation of what this proper system is all about? I think it's new to many of us. So could you just give us a, a short rundown? Sure, I will, I will do my very best. So in our new hymnal, the Sundays after Pentecost um, are, are numbered by proper. So it, it starts with proper three, and then goes up from there. Um, there is an explanation for why it starts with proper three and not with proper one. I've heard that explanation, but uh, it was both uh, a little bit too elaborate and over my head for me to remember. So I, I can't share that aspect of it, but it does. It starts with proper three and goes up from there. And the, the key difference from how we're used to doing things is that um, Instead of just starting right at the very beginning with the Sunday after Holy Trinity, um, there might be a few Sundays that are, are missed on the front end of the post-Pentecost season. So uh, each of those propers is assigned a range of dates that, that lets you know when that proper is to be used. So this upcoming Sunday where we're going to be preaching on the three readings um, that we're talking about today is assigned, is, is June 19th. So when we look at our set of propers and the dates that are assigned to them, we see that proper seven has a date range of June 19th through June 25th, which lets you know, okay, June 19th is coming up. We're gonna use proper seven, which is why that's what we're discussing today. Now, the thing that I think is gonna be a little bit tricky for guys, uh, at least initially, is that you would still refer to the Sunday as the second Sunday after Pentecost. So for example, in your service folder, or when you stand up in front of church at the beginning of, of the service, you don't say, hey, welcome to church, everybody. It's proper seven today. You still say it's the second Sunday after Pentecost. But what has determined uh, which readings you're going to hear that day is this, is this new proper system and the dates that are assigned. 
If I can add just, just one more comment on what I think is a, a real neat advantage of this new proper system. So the upshot mm -hmm. of it is that the movable date of Easter will result in some Sundays being missed at the beginning of the post-Pentecost season instead of at the end of the post-Pentecost season. And I think that's, that's somewhat advantageous for this reason, that <clears throat> the, the readings that we would normally hear right after Pentecost still come from sort of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of the Gospels. Well, in a lot of ways, those are very similar to, and in fact, some of the very same readings that we heard in the later part of the post-Epiphany season. So if Easter is really early, Epiphany gets cut short, but then we get after Pentecost to hear some of those early ministry readings. If Easter is really late, Epiphany is really long, um, and we get to hear some of those early ministry readings then. So we kind of get to hear the early part of Jesus' ministry either way. But the benefit now is that we always get to hear uh, up till the very end, the readings that come from the, the later part of Jesus' ministry. And a perfect example of that comes in this year C series, where in Luke chapter 19, we get the, the very well-known story of Zacchaeus, which is not only a, a great story from Sunday school that we all learn, but is really uh, a, a foundational story for the truth of the gospel and really for, for Luke's gospel. Well, in the old system, that was assigned Pentecost 24, the very last post-Pentecost Sunday, which meant that it almost never got used. But in this new system, because the Sundays get, get shortened at the beginning, we will always hear uh, that very last reading from Luke chapter 19 every single year that, that the Luke series comes around. So I think that's the real benefit of it. And hopefully that adds a little bit of clarity to, to a new thing that'll take a little bit to get used to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For those of us who are used to looking up the readings for the Sunday based on second, third, fourth Sunday after Pentecost, it, it'll take a little adjustment. Now we're looking for a calendar date for the Sunday and then which proper matches up with that. Yeah. And as you said, the, the variation comes at the beginning of this post-Pentecost season rather than, than at the end. But uh, yeah, I think I think it's not too hard to get used to. It took my me a little time to wrap my mind around it, but I think it'll come fairly naturally once uh, once we're into it uh, a few weeks or or once through the cycle. Um, and I think you're right. You you don't really miss anything at the beginning of the series because if as Easter moves, Epiphany is longer or shorter, and you often pick up those readings one way or another from the ministry of Jesus. And then, yeah, you don't get cut off at the end, some of those key readings. So, yeah, thanks for that explanation. Um, yeah, one, one other just real quick thing that I wanted to add is that we did we did not come up with this. This is not new or original with our hymnal. In fact, it brings us in line with what a, a lot of other hymnals do. So it's, it's not something that we kind of cooked up on our own. Right, right. Um, yeah, and hopefully that might even help uh, when you're looking for homiletic or other resources um, outside of, of our publisher, uh, you might you may, may even find it easier in some ways to match up with, uh, with other resources. All right. Well, uh, John, if we could stick with you, John Bauer, um, could you just give us a, a quick uh, summary of this week's theme as we talk about God's words possess God's power? Yeah. So the, the theme for this week is that through the word, the Lord crushes evil. And I, I think in general, it's just a great Sunday to put the focus on the very real 
forces of evil that exist in our world and are at work in our world. We know that Jesus, of course, came to, to defeat evil, um, but that does not mean that he just eradicated our world completely of any and all evil. Um, and so ev evil is a very real thing. It is at work in our world. And yet, uh, really, the focus of this Sunday is that Jesus' words have power over evil. And I, and I think along with that, and we'll see this as we talk about Luke 8 um, today, just sort of a, a corollary to that, that Jesus' words have power over evil, not just when Jesus is speaking them, but when any believer is speaking them as well. So it's kind of a, a neat Sunday to also focus on how in the mouth of the believer, uh, Jesus' words have the power to, to crush and drive back the mm -hmm. forces of evil at work in our world. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Good point. And uh, thanks for that summary. Um, but let's get a view of the other readings and how they relate to that theme. Uh, John Bordelin, could you kind of give us a synopsis of the other readings appointed for this proper seven? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> keying off something uh, John Bauer said there, you know, the the prayer of the day really ties it together for me and helps me see the common line between the, uh, uh, between the reading. So in the prayer of the day, um, addressed to the Father through the Son, Jesus, who was sent into this world to destroy the works of the devil and to protect us poor people against such an evil foe. What an uh, unpopular thought that we are poor people who face a real evil foe. I think we'll talk more about that as we get into Luke 8. And so the next petition, uphold us in all affliction by your Holy Spirit, that we may have peace from such enemies. Remain forever blessed. Well, where will the Holy Spirit give us such peace against such enemies? There it is in Isaiah chapter 43. Uh, in the face of all of these uh, false witnesses, the encouragement to give a good witness, a true witness, and that that the people of God could give in the face of, in the face of uh, all the idols running rampant there um, in Isaiah's time. Um, Paul addresses Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and again, too, the power of the word in, in the mouths of, of Lois and in the mouths of Eunice and Paul and Timothy in their uh, respective ministries. Um, and then finally, uh, the text in front of us today, um, what that word does to drive back evil, um, something to be heard in the 21st century, evil all around us, uh, not just here locally, of course, but you think about uh, the word of Christ going forth in all the world. So um, yeah, excited how those lessons tie together. Um, and I really see that clearly in the prayer of the day. So, yeah, thanks for that rundown and helping us, uh, see how these different portions of scripture link together, uh, around this theme of Jesus defeating evil and using the word to do it. Um, our focus for preaching this week is the gospel of the day, Luke 8, 26 to 39, and we're happy to have uh, Professor Sorum with us today. I think you kind of wrote a book on this, didn't you? Or pretty close, 2,000 Demons from NPH? Yeah, yeah. from Mark's uh, account Mark's, of this. Right, right from Mark's account. Um, so happy to have you with us, Professor Sorum. Alan, could you lead us um, in uh, just getting into this text and um, highlighting some points that might be important for preachers We've, uh, guys have hopefully done a tech study by this point, but um, now can you help us kind of get the wheels turning as we think about proclaiming this text? Absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan. I think the uh, overarching objective 
of Luke's gospel is probably the notion of Jesus having to get to Jerusalem, right? He has to get to Jerusalem because that's where he's going to allow a sinful man to pin him to a cross. That's where he's going to accomplish the gospel of forgiveness for the entire universe. But I think the, the, the text, Luke 8, 26 to 39, shows us uh, Jesus' personal commitment not to rescuing all nations, but also to every single human being. Uh, I personally just delight in what, for lack of a better word, is the relational aspect of Jesus' personality. Um, and, and there's a lot of interesting things that happen in Luke chapter 8. We, we see a determined Savior that has to get to Jerusalem, as, as Luke likes to present Jesus throughout his gospel. And, and he's presented his word to, let's say, his people on one side of uh, this body of water. And then he gets in a boat and sails to the other side of the water to an area that is generally regarded to be fairly Gentile. Uh, we can't say for absolute certain that the demoniacs were Gentiles. It's an interesting conversation because the pigs are involved in the conversation. But if you would allow uh, this assumption that uh, because of Luke's emphasis on Jesus getting to all the towns and every village and every person proclaiming the good tidings of the kingdom of God, I think it's fair to presume that these were really outsiders um, that, that Jesus was sailing across the lake to. Now, you know that on, on that body of water, a storm arose causing great fear in the hearts of the immature disciples to the point where they, they basically said, come on, Jesus, don't you care about us? Don't you see what's going on? Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves, and immediately there's this gorgeous calm. And the disciples boldly articulate their ignorance, and they say, who is this? Who is this person? Who is this guy? Well, what a great answer we're about to get in the story of Jesus driving out thousands of demons from uh, the demoniacs. Uh, the, the end of the story has a, a very grateful uh, healed man, healed from all the demons, saying to Jesus, I, I really want to hang with you. I, I want to go with you. And in a way that strangely anticipates Luke's book of Acts, uh, he says to the healed man, rather go back to your towns and villages where you came from and tell what, get this now, tell what God has done for you. Now, some commentators would say, well, as soon as Jesus references God, that must be a Jewish person that Jesus is talking to. And I think I can make an equally strong case for quite the opposite. Uh, Jesus doesn't refer to himself as the Lord, as I believe Mark does. Here in Luke's account, we have Jesus saying about himself, go tell everyone what God has done for you. So um, in, in the meantime, the, the, the villagers have come out. They've heard this crazy thing that happened. This man that was running naked, screaming every night, causing distress to the whole community. He's now healed by Jesus. And they're, 
uh, tough to read emotions here. You know, like why were the uh, villagers so determined to get rid of Jesus? Uh, whatever the case may be, Jesus Jesus leaves the leaves that place. But the next time Jesus comes around to that neck of the woods, uh, people aren't telling him to go. People are thronging to receive his proclamation of the kingdom. So apparently this former demoniac did a pretty good job declaring the praises of God. Um, I, I think in terms of the narrative, what's interesting is the disciples just have such a hard time understanding who Jesus is. You know, who is this guy? And they've heard him preach. They've seen his miracles. They're constantly wondering, who's this guy? They just got done asking Jesus, you want us to feed 5,000 people like with what? Or 5,000 men with what? So as much as they struggle, here's this, I'm going to say, probable Gentile brushes shoulders with Jesus for a moment of grace and glory, and he gets it. Um, I think it's interesting how Luke presents uh, the clarity of this person's understanding of who Jesus is, while the people who should get it don't seem to have a clue. Great. Uh, John uh, Bordelin, do you have a thought related to what yeah. God has done for you or other parts of the narrative there? Yeah, something that Alan said earlier, you know, just uh, on Jesus' resolute mission to Jerusalem, just his time and care and concern um, for uh, for individuals, and and maybe I should have mentioned this as tying the lessons together, but you just back away from our text a little bit, um, and right before it, the calming of the storm, um, for the benefit of those each and individual disciples there, then in our text, it's the, the man with the demon, and, and all those um, who benefited from it in, in that area and who that man spoke to. You get beyond our text, um, it's it's the woman and it's Jairus's daughter and just the individuals Jesus cared for in such a variety of way. And I don't even, I think maybe in, in terms of preaching then um, in an introductory way, we are, we are plopped in this pericope right in the middle of Jesus caring for individuals in all sorts of situations. And look what he does for all these people. And, and today we actually get to see what happens when he goes toe-to-toe with evil and toe-to-toe with Satan. Um, so that just jumped out when, when Alan made the point about his care for the individuals and fast forward 2,000 years. So, Yeah, excellent point. Uh, John Bauer? Just to, to piggyback on that too a little bit, I think if, uh, you know, if a, a preacher wanted to use this Sunday as an opportunity to sort of address this, this all pervasive question of, you know, what's up with evil and, and what is God going to do about it? And why isn't God doing more? Or why isn't God doing something different about evil? It is just so natural, especially in our day and age where we are, we are plugged into all the evil that is going on in the world at all the time. So we tend to view evil as this global thing that all of us are either responsible for causing or at the very least responsible for doing our part in fixing. Um, whereas, you know, based on what John just said and, and Alan looking at the progression here, looking at what Jesus does here, um, to, to, to rather ask the question, how am I uniquely positioned in my life with and equipped with the words of Jesus to address evil that might be right in front of my face, rather than viewing evil as this nebulous globalized thing that we all, we've all got to fix together. Yeah. <clears throat> Could I add a thought quickly, Jonathan, please? Yeah, yeah, please. I think 
I really like what John, uh, what John just said, John Bauer, because it, this text gives us the opportunity to help our people appreciate the reality of Satan and the appetite of his demons to destroy us. The, the, our society is, it depersonalizes Satan and demons to the point of this force, as, as John was kind of describing it. I, I think that's kind of how we often think about it. But we, it's good for us to review that Satan is a personal being with a personal agenda shared by his demons to, to separate us from God, from the flock. And if he can separate us from the flock and the encouragement of the Christian community, he's got a better chance to destroy us. So good opportunity to make it clear to people that, that playing satanic games or um, um, investing richly in occult movies is a, a definite problem to the security that Jesus has established for us by defeating Satan. Yeah, good, good, good opportunity to bring that reality home to people in a concrete way. Uh, John Bordelin? Yeah, just on that point, whenever you know Mark 5 or this text comes up, you know if, if this is a good time for an encouragement. Hey, if you got an extra hour and a half this week, um, read C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters again, huh? You know, and it just is the reminder of that th these, in uh, a nice, easy read, these, these are real forces really working against the church. And unless I downplay, just how bad is it? I mean, just, just read that story as if hearing it for the first time. Um, he's living among the graves. Uh, he had worn clothes, worn no clothes for a long time. You know, I remember someone saying once, like, yeah, usually when you're not wearing clothes, you're in a bad spot. There's very few places where being clothless is a good thing to be doing. And, uh, and just, uh, you know, what this man was up against. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, this point came home to me. Um, and Alan, I remember reading uh, in your book about this too, when I've had the opportunity to meet people from uh, Southeast Asia or who have grown up in outside of our American culture, different parts of the world where um, these kind of personal forces of evil, Satan and his demons, they're, they're much more open about discussing them or the recognition, it seems to me, is an awareness is much greater. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. In our culture, we tend to depersonalize evil and treat it as in more vague terms, but it's texts like these that really bring home the, uh, the personal nature of Satan and his work. Um, and have the opportunity to yeah give a reminder of that to your people as you're preaching this text. Um, if I could maybe segue from there into preaching law and gospel from this text, often we talk about a malady um, or a, a problem caused by sin and Satan in this text. Uh, maybe it it is quite clear as we just look at the text, but uh, how would you go about putting that into words in a sermon? Um, how do you address the malady, um, given the kind of the upfront nature of evil in this text? Any thoughts on that? Uh, John Bauer? So one, one thing that always strikes me about this text, I mean, you know, we often ask the question of who do you identify with or who do we want our hearers to identify with in this story? And one answer, one option, of course, is the man, the demon-possessed man. And I think especially as we get to the end of the text, and we start talking about Jesus' command to, you know, go home and, and tell others what God has done for you, that's certainly natural. 
Um, but I think it's also interesting to put the hearers in the shoes of the other people who live in this region and to use it as an opportunity um, to point out how maybe we don't notice evil in our world or think about evil all that much um, because we don't, we don't think we see it in the form that it takes in this text. And yet maybe an, an explanation for that um, is that we just get so used to living and existing alongside of evil that we fail to notice it. So it's interesting to me as I look at the text, when Jesus comes ashore, it's not the townspeople who run out to him and say, hey, we've got a problem, Jesus, that you've got to fix. It's the demon-possessed man. And then as Luke describes him, uh, it talks about how, you know, he's, he's away from all the towns. He lives out among the tombs. As John highlighted before, he, he didn't just live without clothes, but he had been doing this for a long, long time. Luke also tells us how they had tried to like tie this guy up, but whenever they did, it was unsuccessful um, until eventually the, the demon drove him into these solitary places. And so I think you, you kind of get the picture that people had just gotten fairly comfortable with the idea, okay, we know that this guy's out there, but if we just kind of leave things alone here in our towns, we're not affected by it a whole lot. Um, and then, you know, the, the flip side of that then, of course, is Jesus upsets everything, right? He, he drives uh, the demons into the pigs, and then all of a sudden, then they're afraid, and then they're upset, and then they want to drive Jesus out. Um, so just the idea of, of using that as an opportunity for formality preaching or law preaching, like evil is, is right around us, but we often convince ourselves if we can just kind of keep it at, at arm's length, then we can go about our day-to-day -day lives and, and uh, you know, forget about it, so to speak. Yeah, become sort of desensitized to the the status quo, right? Uh, John Bordelin. Yeah, thanks for that. John Bauer said it much more eloquently than I would have. Um, I don't know if I put this in the term of a malady, but something I struggle with um, in the text um, that which that which caused them great fear, it seems, was not this man who was in this spot, <clears throat> but what caused them the greatest fear was when the kingdom of God arrived in their midst and did something about it. And that was what caused them to say, um, Jesus, uh, Jesus, get out of here. And then if I'm, I'm looking at my own heart, you know, what, what, what really winds up terrifying then is, is not, not always the evil that's so close uh, to me and within me, but when Jesus Christ actually comes to do something about that and um, and the, that whole dying to self and, and living in him thing. Um, and so I don't understand that, but I do because that's the, the daily struggle. But then what I really don't understand is um, when they told Jesus to leave, that he left, <laughs> you know, um, the, that the ways, of, you know, depart. And so Jesus, Jesus departed. Well, how can Jesus do that other than, I know from the rest of scripture, he's on his way to Jerusalem, other than I know that in that place, at least, he has one um, in his home now, at least, declaring what God has done um, for him, so. Alan, a thought? Yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I could see taking this text one of two directions, similar to what... Uh, we just heard, 
one way to take this text would be to say to God's people, how much more evidence do you need that you have a deluxe mamma jamma savior? What, what more evidence, what more proof do you need? Why are you playing games with God when we have the God who has taken care of all? I'm preaching the law here, obviously. Um, so that would be one direction. And then the gospel being a God who had this great power to drive out every demon, and but gave up that power so he could go to the cross to suffer our hell. And that's a, a, an incredible juxtaposition of the powerful giving up all of his power for the benefit of us. But I think where I'd be more inclined to go with this text is just to try to share with people the restless heart of God, the restless heart of Jesus, just determined to get to every outcast, every downtrodden, every refugee, every really sick, bad off person. You know, uh, I'm sure that the Wells is going to make sure the suburbs are well attended to. And I don't say that in a negative way at all. We should be eager to serve all people everywhere, but including people we don't maybe normally see, like open our eyes to see Lazarus begging at the gate, as Jesus did, and to, to literally not be put off, let's say, by the veneer of a Muslim or the veneer of a, of a demon-possessed person or, the, or some other veneer that Satan uses as a mask, as it were, uh, to scare Christians away. Um, I think uh, here's an opportunity to say, go, go to that place where a human being is in need. He's uh, on one side of him is darkness and satanic dominion, but you go to the other side of him with light and invite him or her into that light. I think that's, that's a great text to show that the determin determination of Jesus to get to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. What a power, powerful gospel uh, message to say Jesus love is this powerful uh, he's searching he's seeking um, he is not put off by those who are marginalized I mean which it, in, in this text literally is this demon-possessed man who is living uh, right outside the bounds of, of regular society uh, but Jesus is searching and seeking his love is extending there yeah a powerful gospel message um, that comes through in this text so clearly. Yeah. And maybe that's where Jesus found me, Jonathan, is just yep. in the rubble heap. Yep. Uh, I, I think Paul says something similar. If we can convey that humility and gratitude to our people that, you know, Jesus goes to the rubble heaps to make treasures out of what used to be rubble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Out in the tombs, right? Uh, people who what you think have no business being anywhere near Jesus. Uh, he embraces them man sets them free. Great. Um, how about, uh, uh, as we think about preaching this text, um, we're kind of getting into some naturally just some applications and things like that. Um, how about uh, a structure for the sermon? Any potential uh, things you're thinking about as a, a possible theme to kind of tie things together or encapsulate the, the main thrust of the text? Um, can start there. How would you summarize it or help preachers crystallize sort of the main point of the text? I, mean, I think we're kind of doing it already, but but John Bordelin, could you help us out on that? Yeah, I won't answer your question, and I'll get all the way for guys who are probably way better about this theme and organization thing than my preaching always maybe always shows. But 
just going through this again, just maybe an encouragement um, to, to almost let the story tell itself. Um, just however one of you just said it there about being out in the two. I mean, there's such rich imagery um, and the state of this man apart from Jesus and the state of the herdsman living in fear versus what happens when Jesus is there with a touch of healing. And so um, tying in with the overall theme of the lessons, um, you know, we actually know where Jesus is there um, to drive out evil stuff. And he's there for you, like on a regular basis as we gather together. And so um, just that's an overarching thing as I'm preaching this text, like there's so much rich stuff there in, in Luke's pericope to uh, a prayer, Lord, just get me out of the way on this one. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The richness of detail in this uh, is so captivating. Um, and there's so much of it, right? Just let it shine through, right? Um, other thoughts on how you might go about, uh, I know, Alan, you do that when I've heard you preach recently, uh, regularly, um, a lot of it's just kind of walking through, especially a narrative like this, because the narrative right here in scripture has its own kind of shape and contours, um, just kind of following along, or as John just said, kind of getting out of the way of the text. Um, is that probably how you would uh, go about preaching this text? Well, uh, for, for almost 40 years, my professional associations, ministerial associations have been with a oral people. So I've learned to think in a very uh, oral kind of way. So uh, what, what I teach, when I teach PS, Pastoral Studies Institute men how to preach, I, I just more or less identify their cultural way to A, tell a story, but tell the story with clothing on it that the people in front of you would recognize the characters as people that they identify with, people they know. So you tell the story in a compelling way that that is leading to the direction you want to take them. And so uh, you have a destination in mind. You have a theme in mind. For, for example, if um, my theme might be something like this, that um, Jesus will not be kept from rescuing you, just rough draft. Mm -hmm. So I'll tell the story in a way that gets, that highlights that aspect of the story and then my uh my law idea in that after telling the story is boy you know we're pretty easily tripped up from uh, getting the gospel to anybody uh, we can think of 300 reasons to not cross those um, cultural barriers or my inconvenience or my discomfort or my busy schedule whatever and then the gospel uh, that would come out of that presentation of the story is a relentless savior who actually found me in that rubble heap on his way to rescue every human being. And then I'd wrap that up with, uh, you know, the way, the way I do it, which and I'm not suggesting anyone else should, but I'm, the way I would do it is a strong leadership paragraph where uh, as spiritual leader of the flock, I would say, you know, therefore brothers and sisters, uh, let's get after this rescue of every single people in our family, in our community, in our connection. We have the power that defeats every force that would try to keep the, that, that, that Satan's going to use to keep people in his congregation of the dead. Let's, let's get out there and rescue them. Something like that. 
Great. Yeah. Great yeah. ideas. Good ideas. Uh, John Bauer. Yeah, I, I, I really, I mean, I like that concept and, and just kind of building off it a little bit. I think you could, yeah, and it, you know, as I look at the text, it, it seems that, you know, the vast majority of it, the first 12 verses kind of builds and builds and builds and reaches what you would maybe expect to be the conclusion. And then 38 and 39 just hang there at the end in a way that is so striking to me that <clears throat> seems like that has to be kind of like its own separate whole part of the sermon. And just building on, you know, kind of what, what Alan said, Jesus will not be kept from rescuing you. The, the first thing that illustrates that so well is Jesus' willingness to go to the other side of the lake and to find this man um, with all the things that we know about him that, that made him a difficult person for Jesus to rescue. But then you think about the other thing in this story that would have kept Jesus from rescuing a whole lot more people, which is that the, the people of the region asked him to leave. And yet even in that, Jesus will not be kept from rescuing more and more people because he leaves this man with the command to go home and tell tell people how much God has done for them. So you kind of see it in, in both facets. And to me, it's, I mean, I think it's, it's a, it's a, a very effective literary technique that in some ways it's, it's almost like there's this, there's, there's two equal parts to the story, but one part gets 12 whole verses. And then the second part just gets these little two tack-ons at the end. And you're left to wonder, well, what, what happened next? And we can kind of fill in some of those some of those blanks from the rest of scripture, as Alan mentioned way at the beginning. Um, and I think it's, it's helpful to explore that with people a little bit. Do you, do you know what happened after Jesus left this region? More people got rescued um, because of what this man was able to tell them. Great. Yeah. Excellent thoughts. Yeah. So we see here just the powerful uh, reaching love of Jesus, his, uh, relentlessness in going after those who uh, otherwise might be just pushed off to the side, um, the love that seeks them out, and of course is decisive power over evil to seek and to save and to rescue and to bring new life. Uh, and then, yeah, that same word that continues reaching out through this man who has been set free, through us who have been set free, um, through our people who have been set free by the same Savior. Uh, any final thoughts before we wrap up today? Um, if not, we should probably, uh, we could go on all day, but we should probably uh, wrap things up for now. Um, God's blessings as you preach this word and consider how through this powerful word, the Lord crushes evil.